0: Good morning again. This morning, we'd like to continue in our series, which we've entitled The Battle for Truth. And by doing that, I'd like you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, as we kind of review just a little bit as we get a kind of a running start on today's study. But in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the very first verse of the first chapter says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said. And so in the first few verses of the Bible, we learn that there is a God, that He is a powerful and intelligent being who created everything. And that he speaks. We later learn that he desires to speak to us. He desires to communicate to us. And in fact has done so through his word in the pages of scripture. In both of these ways, God reveals himself to us. The creation is called general revelation. And the scriptures are called special revelation Now that's important because Christianity claims to be a revealed truth. A revelation is something that is made known to us by God. It is something that would be impossible for us to know through our own logic or intelligence or our own normal thought processes. It is knowledge that comes from divine input as opposed to, we'll say, philosophy, which is the product of man, something that he comes up with through his own reason and logic whereas revelation is something that is supernaturally revealed by God. You see, the Bible says God is spirit. God dwells in the spirit realm, but of course, he can interact with all those he has created in the physical realm because he's God. Man, on the other hand, is physical and is trapped in the physical realm. And because man is physical and God is spirit, there is no way a physical human being Trapped in a box that we call the physical four-dimensional universe, there's no way a human being can, through their own five senses, poke a hole in the box, climb out and find God. just can't happen. Many years ago, Job asked the question, can a man by searching find God? And of course, the answer is no, because man, through his own senses and personal quest for God, is incapable of reaching beyond the boundaries of the physical natural realm that he finds himself trapped in and therefore is incapable of knowing anything about or understanding anything about the supernatural God. As someone has said, we can't expect the bug in the bottle to understand the little boy that put it there any more than we can expect the natural man with his natural capacities to understand the supernatural God unless that God chose to condescend and reveal himself to man, end quote. and that's exactly what he did. It's called revelation, and there are two kinds of revelation that God has given mankind that reveal Himself to us. The first is called general revelation. Now we've already looked at this. I'm just going to touch on it. There's two parts to it. There's first of all the outward revelation of the creation, and we looked at the verses that really. Drive this home to us. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verses 20, and well, verse 20, he said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that the people of this world are without excuse. They cannot plead ignorance to the knowledge of God. I didn't know God existed, you know, and that kind of a thing. God says, No, I have revealed myself clearly through the creation. That I exist. The psalmist said, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork, day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So the creation is preaching to the people of this world in a universal language that everyone can understand that God exists, he is real because of the creation. So we have the outward revelation of the creation, but we also have the inward revelation of our conscience. And again, we already talked on this in detail. Where did man get this innate sense of right and wrong if we're just the product of chemical processes, as the evolutionists tell us? Chemicals can't produce morals. And morals, especially things like compassion and mercy, would undermine the very foundation upon which evolution is built if it was true. Where did we get this innate sense? Everybody in the face of the planet has this innate sense within their hearts of what's right and what's wrong. It couldn't have gotten there unless a divine being who created us put it there. And we learn from the pages of scripture that God is a moral God and he wrote his laws on our hearts and then gave us a conscience to tell us when we violate something that he has said. So general revelation, it's an awesome thing. And as powerful as it is, it can only go so far, though, in revealing God to a person. I mean, it can prove that God exists, it can prove that He is a powerful God. Just look at the universe, the size of it. Just look into the heavens, and we can see that whoever this God is, He's extremely powerful. And he must be very wise because the way everything comes together and balance, the e- ecosystems and even our body, how they're fearfully and wonderfully made and, and all of our systems fit together and work perfectly. We know he's, he's wise. We know he's a God that loves beauty because look at the world around us. There's a lot of beauty, a lot of color, things that indicate that this God, whoever he is, is a God that enjoys beauty. They, they say that there are, they have discovered fish at the bottom of the ocean where no light penetrates in complete, total darkness. Yet when they've gotten down there with a, a light, these fish are extremely colorful. There will be no reason for them to be colorful down there because there's no light, except God knows they're there and he enjoys looking at them. So we can learn a lot about this God. He's powerful. He's wise. He's a God that enjoys beauty. He's a moral God, as we've already said. He's written his laws on our hearts. He's told us what's right and wrong. And as wonderful as all that information is about him, it isn't enough. It's not enough to save us. And so in addition to general revelation, God also gave us special revelation. Special revelation is God's revelation of himself in Scripture. And this is where God kind of gets, you know, up close and personal with us. He introduces himself to us in the pages of Scripture, tells us his name, gives us personal information about himself that we could really, couldn't really find out about him by just looking at the creation, that he's holy, he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's long-suffering, you know, all the attributes of God that the creation really doesn't tell us about him or teach us about him. He has told us about himself in the pages of Scripture. It's also in the pages of Scripture that God tells us about us. Tells us about the nature of man, about his fallen condition. He talks about sin and righteousness, salvation, judgment. He tells us about the first coming, the second coming, the kingdom age, the eternal state. The Scriptures teach us about heaven and about hell. All of these things we learned that God has spoken to us in the pages of Scripture, what the theologians call special Revelation. Old Testament scholar Gleason Archer put it this way, and I quote, How then can we know God or His will for our lives? Only if He reveals Himself to us. Unless He Himself tells us, we can never know for sure the answers to those questions which matter most to us as human beings. At this point, it is important to observe that the Bible presents itself as the written revelation of God. This purports to be a book in which God gives us the answers to the great questions which concern our soul and which all the wisdom and science of man are powerless to solve with any degree of certainty. Francis Schaeffer, referring to God, wrote, and I quote, He is there and He is not silent. The writer to the Hebrews, in that epistle, chapter 1, verse 1, starts out with these words, God who at different times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. He's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. But really, this could include the New Testament as well. He's telling us that the pages of scripture, the various books of the Bible were given at different times to us and in various stages. It was God's progressive revelation to us. Scripture is progressive revelation in the sense that it goes from partial to complete, not in the sense that it goes from error to truth or from truth to error, as some of the cults contend. It's God's unfolding revelation to us. The word spoke there in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, is the Greek word apocalypto, and it means to unveil something that was previously hidden. That's what revelation is. It's God kind of pulling the curtains away from himself that we would see him more clearly for who he is. It's God's way of making himself known to us, and without which there could be no knowledge of God apart from his condescending. See, we're stuck in the Four-dimensional universe. The scientists used to think it was three-dimensional. But they realized that time is also a dimension. So it's height, width, depth, and time. But we're stuck in this four-dimensional universe. We can't. I mean, you listen to certain groups and they'll tell you, well, you can find God. Just assume the lotus position. Look at your navel and hum, you know. Go um. If you do that long enough, you could poke a hole in the box, climb out and find God. But that's not true. That's not true. The only way a physical human being trapped in a physical universe could ever know a supernatural God is if God invaded this realm and spoke to us. That's what special revelation is all about. Without it, we could have no knowledge of God. I like what Pastor John MacArthur said, and I quote, Here we are on this little planet, trapped on earth, bound by time and space, sensing deep within ourselves that somewhere out there, there is some kind of intelligent being who created all of this. We call him God, but we haven't got any way to attain any information about him. Satan has told us that there are many roads that will lead us to this God, so man has invented one religion after another in the hopes of reaching God. But these are nothing more than philosophical systems of faith that come from the mind of man. Whereas the Bible says that God at different times and in various ways spoke. End quote. Now, of course, the ultimate example of special revelation that more completely revealed God to man, more clearly than anything he had previously said, was the incarnation. We could say... That the culmination of special revelation was the incarnation. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews went on to say in chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. He said, God who at different times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. You have to understand something. That for 4,000 years before Jesus came, God was revealing himself to man in little bits and pieces, through the prophets, through the spoken word, through visions, and, and, and angels even who came and gave man certain little bits and pieces about God, and visions, and dreams, and theophanies. What's a theophany? It's an Old Testament appearance of God. We see how that Jacob wrestled with the Lord. Remember that? And we see different places where it was actually the Lord Jesus Christ who made a little Old Testament cameo appearance before his incarnation. And it was just that kind of a thing where God was was mostly through the prophets revealing for 4,000 years little bits and pieces about himself. And then finally, we come to the New Testament. And John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, a title for Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. The word, spoken to the prophets, verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No longer a prophet speaking for God, now God coming to earth, taking on human form and speaking for himself. Now, we will have a lot more to say about the Lord Jesus Christ being God's final word of revelation to this world later in the study. But let me just continue with our look at kind of a foundational look at special revelation, which we call, of course, the Bible. The Bible is a composite of 66 books written by 40 different authors from all walks of life. Let me give you an example. Moses was a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter was a fisherman, Amos was a herdsman, Joshua was a military leader, Nehemiah was a cupbearer, Daniel was a prime minister, Luke was a physician, Solomon was a king, Matthew was a tax collector, and Paul was a rabbi, just to name a few of the biblical writers and some of the things that they did for a living. The Bible was written over a 1600-year period from roughly 1500 B.C. To 100 AD. It was written on three different continents Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages. The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, but there were some parts written in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek. It was written at different times. David wrote in times of war and adversity, Solomon wrote in times of peace and prosperity. Some of it was written while Israel was a free nation. Some of it was written while they were in captivity. It was written during different moods. Some of the authors of the Bible were writing from the heights of joy, while others wrote from the depths of sorrow and despair. And any writer will tell you that the mood of a writer will greatly affect the writing. If a person is really filled with great joy at the time of the writing, it's going to have a different tone and maybe even a different outlook than if someone is writing from the depths of despair on a similar subject. Its authors wrote on hundreds of controversial subjects. A controversial subject is one that would create opposing opinions when brought up and discussed. The biblical writers wrote about such things as the person and nature of God the origin of the universe, and the fall and redemption of man. They wrote about subjects like sin, eternity, heaven, hell, and so on. All of these subjects, when mentioned in various group settings, would immediately bring up opposing views and opinions. I challenge you, go to a coffee shop or go onto some university campus. Gather some people together. Say, look, I want to ask you about God. What do you think about God? Who is he or what is he? About heaven, what do you think about heaven if you even believe in heaven? What do you think about eternity? What do you think about the origin of everything? What do you think about things like sin and judgment and this and that? I guarantee you, you will have as many opinions, different opinions, as you have people present. And yet the biblical writers, listen to me, wrote on literally hundreds of controversial subjects with absolute harmony and continuity from beginning to the end. Folks, that is one of the most powerful proofs of the Bible's divine authorship and inspiration. The Bible may have been written through 40 different penmen, but make no mistake about it, it had one author, the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle book. It's one unfolding story from Genesis to Revelation. What is that story? It's the story of God's redemptive plan for mankind. In the Old Testament, through the coming Messiah, and in the New Testament, through the Messiah that has come. Geisler and Nix, in their general introduction to the Bible, put it this way, and I quote, In Genesis, you have paradise lost, and in Revelation, you have paradise regained. You can't understand Revelation without Genesis, and you can't understand Genesis without Revelation. It's all woven together so intricately, it's like a beautiful tapestry. It's actually one book with 66 chapters, one unfolding story from beginning end. To the end, end quote. F.F. Bruce, who was a Christian scholar, professor, and author said, and I quote, no part of the human body can be properly explained outside the context of the whole body. So no part of the Bible can be properly explained or understood outside the context of the Bible as a whole, end quote. In other words, it fits together intricately and perfectly as a single message from outside Our physical realm. Just think about this for one second. Here you have one man on one continent, in one society, one culture, speaking one language from one walk of life in one particular mood, writing on a controversial subject. And then you have another man, different continent, different walk of life, different language, different mood, writing on that same controversial subject. And when they're brought together, there's absolute harmony and agreement that's a miracle. I don't know if people realize how much of a miracle that really is. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I was listening to a teaching by Josh McDowell. Josh is a Christian apologist. He's a defender of the faith. He's written books evidence that demands a verdict, and so on. I mean, he's really a great apologist. And for uh, some of his uh, early years, he had a partner, Don Stewart. Don's been out at our men's retreat. He's spoken to us, and I've known Don for many years. Don worked along with Josh McDowell, writing books that defended the Christian faith. Both of them are premier Christian apologists. One day, they were together, I think in Josh's house, probably working on some book, and there's a knock on the door. Open the door, and there is a salesman. And he's trying to sell a series of books called Great Books of the Western World. They said, well, come on in. So they let him talk for five minutes on the Great Books of the Western World. Then they talked to him for an hour on the greatest book. And they used this argument with him. They said, look, you know literature. You deal with literature. Do you know that the Bible is written by 40 different authors? Over a 1,600-year period, three continents, three languages, different moods, all kinds of different walks of life on hundreds of controversial subjects, yet when it comes together, there's complete harmony and continuity from beginning to end. What What do you think would happen, they said to this guy, if you took five people who lived in the same place, spoke the same language, were writing from the same kind of a mood on one controversial subject, what do you think you'd get? He thought about it for a moment. He said, you get five different opinions. That's right. He thought about it for a little longer and he gave his heart to Christ. Because, folks, people that deal with literature, they especially understand how much of a miracle that really is. It is an absolute astounding thing. One of the things that I believe really attests to the divine authorship of the Bible. We take it for granted, but it's an incredible thing to think about. The Bible is the only religious book in the world that speaks of the unknown with the same authority and confidence as it does the known things of history or the things that we see in the natural realm i mean you know i mean the bible speaks of life but then it also speaks with the same confidence and assurance of beyond the grave what happens to us in life beyond the grave it talks about heaven and hell and it's the same whether you're talking about the old testament or the new testament when these subjects are 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 talked about there's always an agreement and it's not guessing it's with authority Because the author who gave us the Bible knows what lies beyond the grave. When the Lord finally appeared to Job as he began to question God in his sorrow and all. And at one point, because Job said, I'd be better off dead. I don't even want to be alive anymore. You know, in the grave there's peace. And God finally appeared to Job and said, Job, have you been beyond the gates of death? You talk like one who's been there. Let me tell you, I know what's beyond the gates of death, God said. And God isn't guessing when he speaks of these things. He knows. The Bible speaks of future things with the same authority and confidence. And in the case of fulfilled prophecy, the same accuracy as it does historical events. Prophecy is one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is the word of God. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Even as God said, I'm going to tell you things before they happen. So that when they come to pass, you will know that I'm God. Because only I can tell you the future and be right. How many times? Every single time. A hundred percent. I'm not guessing. I know what's coming. And so in that regard, the Bible has no equal, including the sacred writings of any other religion. In fact, Professor M. Montero Williams, former Bowdoin professor of Sanskrit, who spent 42 years studying Eastern books and sacred writings, said in comparing them to the Bible, he said, pile them, if you will, on the left side of your table... But place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between the Bible and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever, a veritable gulf, which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought." In other words, folks, the Bible stands alone. It's unique. Coming from a man who spent 42 years studying all the other writings of the Eastern religions and comparing them to the Bible. I mean, several years ago, we had um, Wes Bentley, who was a director of um, one of the missions that we support in Africa, uh, far-reaching ministries. And uh, they, they, they work in a lot of Muslim countries because there's a lot of you know, unrest and there's a lot of, uh, of problems and they try to minister to Muslims. And when they move into an area, he was telling me, they, they, they gather the guys together, the Muslims, and they start teaching them the Bible. If they're open to listening, they, they start teaching them the Bible. And they start getting converted left and right. And he said, You know, the Quran is a dead book. I remember a professor one time who said he had, professor, a Christian professor, said he had to read the Quran one summer for just because if it was something for a course he was doing. He said he opened it up and began to read it, and he said it was the most dry. The most dead experience and that's the way it is with a lot of the muslims and you start reading the bible which is living and powerful and it brings life it begins to move in their hearts it begins to convert it's a powerful book there's nothing like it when you compare it to any other religions of the world and their sacred writings Let me kind of begin to wrap this up by just giving you some more general information. We're just laying a foundation today, but let me kind of give you some more general information about the Bible that you may or may not already know. The word Bible comes from the word biblos, and that is the Greek word for book. The word biblos comes from the word that was given to the inner bark of the papyrus reed upon which ancient books were written. The plural form is biblia. And by the 2nd century A.D., Christians were using this word to describe their sacred writings. The Bible is one book divided into two parts called testaments. The Hebrew word for testament is berith. The Greek word is diatheke. They both mean covenant. A covenant is a, is a contract or a, an agreement between two parties. The Old Testament was first called the book of the covenant in Moses' day, way back in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. Later on in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, God says to the prophet Jeremiah that there was coming a day when he would make a new covenant with his people. And Jesus, of course, introduced that covenant at the Last Supper. You can read about that in Matthew 26, verse 28. And so the Bible begins with the Old Covenant and it ends with the New Covenant. And let's really kind of call the Old Covenant the Older Covenant. There's a lot of Christians who think that Well, that's the Old Testament. In other words, the outdated, obsolete. No, it's the Older Testament, but it dovetails perfectly with the New Testament. I think Augustine summed it up beautifully when he said, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed, and in the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. They fit together. You can't really have one without the other. Together they are God's unfolding revelation to man. And so the Bible is two parts. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. The Old Testament in our English Bible is divided according to subject matter. First of all, you have the five books of the law, which cover Genesis through Deuteronomy. Followed by the 12 books of history, which is Joshua through Esther. Then you have the five books of poetry, which is Job through Song of Solomon. And finally, you have the 17 books of prophecy, which cover Isaiah through Malachi. The New Testament divisions are these. We have, first of all, the biographical books, which are the four Gospels, followed by the historical book, which is the book of Acts, which is then followed by what's called the pedagogical or the teaching books, which are the epistles. And then finally, the capstone on the entire Bible, not just the New Testament, is the prophetic book we call Revelation. I'm sure most of you know this, but the Bible was not originally divided into chapters and verses as we know it today. These were added much later for ease of reference. Can you imagine a Bible without chapters and verses? Where was that? You know, I mean, how that, we have a hard enough time finding it with a chapter and verses. Can you imagine just having a book where it just all just, just kept going without any divisions or whatever? It'd be difficult The chapter divisions were contributed by Stephen Langton, who was Archbishop of Canterbury, who died in 1228. The Greek New Testament was first published with verse divisions by Robert Stephanus in 1551. The Hebrew Old Testament was divided into verses by 1559, and the first Bible to be published with both chapter and verse divisions was the Geneva Bible of 1560. Now, let me just end with this, okay? William Tyndale, is considered the father of the English Bible. And he was apparently born in a hamlet near the Welsh border in about 1490 AD, of course. And one biographer had this to say, and I'm just going to quote him. He arrived at Oxford with a gift for languages and began studying the writings of the greatest linguist in the world, which was Erasmus. He poured over Erasmus's Greek New Testament and other writings, and he soon began lecturing from them the Bible was still virtually unavailable in English and an idea formed in William Tyndall's mind. Now, let me stop there. Up until Tyndall's time, you had, of course, the Hebrew Old Testament, you had the Greek New Testament, and you had the Latin Vulgate. But for the most part, the Bible, in England, of course, was not translated in the the common tongue, English. So when people came to church, they had to depend on the clergy to tell them what the Bible said. Well, the problem with that is, if your clergy is not really upright, and many of them were not, and the clergy wanted to keep you in the dark because the clergy wanted to do certain things to control people, they wouldn't tell you certain parts of the Bible. They wouldn't let you in on the things that contradicted what the church wanted to teach. It kept people in darkness. And Tyndall had a vision. He wanted to have the Bible translated into the common tongue so that every person in his part of the world could read the Bible for themselves this was radic- this was revolutionary it's radical and so he began preaching and proclaiming the value of pure scripture and of the need to translate it and he was threatened and opposed for this radical idea. One man when confronted with tyndall's vision, kind of yelled voice rising he said. We are better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. Tyndall's reply is among the most famous in church history. He said, and I quote, If God spares me ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. End quote. He approached the Bishop of London for help in rendering the Bible into English, but he was rebuffed. Tyndall nevertheless began working on his project. Finding his life in danger, he fled to the continent There he continued translating, smuggling copies of Matthew and Mark back into London. Spies combed Europe for him, and Tyndall played a cloak and dagger game, hiding and running, translating and smuggling, until by the year 1525, complete copies of the New Testament were being secretly read in England. Can you imagine what we take for granted? People, they didn't know anything about what it meant to be able to read the scriptures in their own language, and the people that... Wanted to see that happen. Men like Tyndall were persecuted and pursued. The church wanted to keep people in darkness. The entrance of God's word brings light, the Bible says. Can't have that if you want to keep people in darkness. Well, finally, on May 21st, 1535, Tyndall was betrayed and seized. He languished in a miserable prison cell. But his witness was so powerful that the jailer and his family were converted by the witness of William Tyndall, On October 6th, 1536, he was tied to a stake outside of Brussels where they tried to burn him to death. Now I say try, I don't know if the wood was too green or it was too damp, but they tried for three hours to burn this guy at the stake, couldn't get the fires going. And all the while he's preaching his heart out at the crowd. Finally they said to the executioner, get in there, and strangle the guy. So they strangled him and then they finished burning his body. So when you read he was strangled and burned, you wonder, well, why did they have to do both? Well, now you know why. He was 42 years old. His, Tyndall's final words were these, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, that was a prayer that little be to William Tyndall, God had already answered. You see, King Henry VIII had already approved of a new English Bible by Miles Coverdale, who was Tyndall's friend. What Henry VIII did not realize was that Coverdale's Bible was nearly 70% Tyndall's work. So you have to understand, Henry VIII was not a nice man. And because he wanted to have multiple wives and he wanted to live a really reprobate life, he knew he couldn't do that being a member of the Church of Rome and being subject to the Pope. So because he wanted to divorce his one wife who was barren and marry another gal, after 17 years of marriage and knew that the church would never go for that, he decided, well, the heck with it. I'm going to start my own church, the Church of England, and I'm going to be the head of this new church. Now, what happened was he had to make a break from the Church of Rome, and so somebody counseled him, well, sire, the way to do that is, you know, you've got to have a a Bible of your own. You can't, you know, as long as people are, you know, going to the the, um, Latin Vulgate, they'll always be connected to the Church of Rome. You've got to give them a new translation. That's why he went ahead, went ahead and uh, hired uh, Coverdale to produce a Bible. Little little beknownst to Henry VIII was mostly the work of Tyndall, who he had executed s- several years before. So this Bible was produced. You know what the problem was? They began to read it. They began to read the scriptures for the first time in their native tongue, English. You know what that did? it began to set them free, and it began to show them how corrupt Henry VIII was. That led to a revolt. People began to leave the Church of England. You had the Puritans and later the Pilgrims. And you had different people breaking away from the Church in in opposition to how the king was living. But this is where the English Bible really came from. And by 1604, King James I approved a new translation of the Bible into English, and Tyndall's work became the basis of 90% of the King James Version. Another author goes on to say, Until publication of the King James Bible in the early 1600s, it was unusual for anyone to possess the scriptures in the common language. Even then, initial publication was one Bible per official state-approved church. So even after the king had commissioned this Bible to be produced and all. Even then, only one was issued to every state-approved church, the Church of England. And they used to keep it under lock and key, or they would have a chain to the pulpit, an immovable pulpit, and that's where it's, you never had a Bible in your own home. You had to come to church to read it if they even had the thing out. It would be another 200 years or so before individually printed Bibles would begin making their way into the hands and homes of everyday Christians, and then largely for the rich alone. Of course, with the colonization of America, Bibles began making their way to the New World, but only sparsely until printing houses were established and Bibles became an affordable commodity. That means that the availability of personal Bibles is, in the grand scheme of church history, a fairly recent phenomenon. Even more recent, is the phenomenon of multiple personal Bibles which sit on shelves collecting dust and remain largely unread and unstudied. This author concludes by saying, it's hard to believe that only 500 years or so in the past, Christians died for proposing the right to personal study of the scriptures. And today, Christians are effectively dead for lack of it, End quote. Now, I just say all this, and kind of just give you just a little foundation to just show you how remarkable God's Word is, how it's come to us from God Himself. Yes, using human agents to pen it on paper, but the Holy Spirit superintending the entire thing because it fits together as one unfolding story. And Satan has tried to oppose it from the very beginning. You remember way back in Genesis chapter 3, After God had put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and told them what they could do and what they could not do, Satan took the form of a serpent. He beguiled Eve, and the first thing he tried to do was sow doubt in her mind as to what God had said. And that began the long war against God's word. The devil hates the word because the word is living and powerful. It can bring new life to those who are dead and in darkness, and it can give victory to those who are the children of God. And so the devil has opposed it, He has persecuted those people who tried to to make it available to the masses. Satan has tried to keep the masses in darkness. And people died to give us copies of the scriptures in our own language. And so the devil has changed his tactics. He's still opposing the word of God. He is still coming against it in different forms of attacks. I want to look at some of these as the weeks go on. There's a big reason I believe that Christians are not reading their Bibles because a lot of Christians have lost faith in the Word of God as having the power to transform their lives. They have listened to others that tell them it's full of errors. We have a movie coming out in a couple of weeks, The Da Vinci Code, that's going to cause a lot of people to doubt whether the Bible and the Christian faith are not just nothing more than a big sham. Bring it on. I welcome it because the truth never needs to fear lies. The truth is always more powerful than lies. If it opens up dialogue, as Paul said, whether Christ is preached out of a good motivation or out of pretense, something wicked, as long as Christ is being preached, I rejoice. If people are interested and they ask us questions, is this movie true? What do you think about this? And we can intelligently give them the answers then I think God is going to use it. What Satan intends for evil, I think God's going to use it for good. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of honest dialogue because the word of God will stand up to any error, to any lie. I think a lot of times Christians don't read their Bibles because they have been so brainwashed into thinking that the Bible is a book that you can't really trust. I mean, these folks wrote a long time ago, you know, and as they passed this information along from person to person, it was embellished and was changed and it was errors were introduced and you can't really trust it i mean science has proven that the bible is not true right i mean how can we really trust the bible and 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 so on and so forth and there's errors and and so people's concept of the bible has been so undermined and shaken they don't feel it has anything that's going to bring them anything in the way of guidance or or power to live or or anything like that And the sad thing about it is I think a lot of God's people have kind of fallen into that trap as well, even though they wouldn't say it that way. If we really understood how precious the word of God is, how many thousands and thousands of people died that we could have a copy for ourselves. The trouble that God went through to preserve it over the last 6,000 years that we might have in our laps this morning, a copy of the word of God that we are confident is accurate and tells us what God has wanted us to hear from the very beginning. And so as we move our way through this series, as we continue looking at the Word of God, I want you to be aware how the devil is trying to keep us away from the Bible. And he's using all kinds of things to do it because he knows that if we will study the Word on our knees and ask, ask God for the grace to, to learn it and to, to live it and to, and to just apply it into our lives, he knows it's going to transform us and he can't handle victorious Christians that are a real threat to his kingdom. So may God give us the grace to continue to study how precious his word is and how we can know it is, in fact, the very word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that not only did you create us, but you communicated with us. You gave us information that we would have had no way of knowing about, had it not been for you coming and speaking to us through your word. Lord, forgive us for the lackadaisical attitude that we have taken towards this precious book. Forgive us, Lord, that the pages of scripture have been stained with the blood of martyrs for centuries. And yet it, it lies in our coffee tables collecting dust. while we watch our favorite TV programs or sporting events. As we languish in ignorance and immaturity because we're too lazy to grow by studying the word of God, that in these last days we could be a light to those in darkness. Forgive us, Father. That's a great sin. And we ask you, Lord, to work in our hearts that we would begin to rise in the morning, take our Bibles in our hands, fall on our knees and thank you for what you've given us, and open it and study it on our knees, as it were, as the precious thing that it is, the words of life, that we might share those words with others. We just thank you, Lord. And ask you to continue to bless this series and transform us through these truths. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.